Hey, good morning, everyone. How y'all doing? Uh, I, I hope you're here uh, with an open heart, ready to receive, because uh, we have a very special guest with us today, Jack Deere. If, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know I've talked about it, uh, his impact and the impact of the books Jack uh, wrote, particularly Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. But uh, then the second book, Surprised by the Voice of God. Uh, how many of you have read Surprised by the Power of the Spirit? Okay. Uh, everybody should read it. All right, please. I, I'm serious about that. How many of you uh, have been impacted by surprised by the voice of God? Okay. Well, I'm going to say this. If you've been to this church before, you have been impacted by both of those books because they impacted my life in a tremendous way. And in 1994, reading Jack's uh, first book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit, literally rocked our lives, rocked our world, turned us around, and headed us in the direction of pursuing God in working in a real living way today. And, um, I, and I'm, I, I will always be so thankful for that and, and honor Jack for that. Um, one of the things Jack said in his book was, this was 1994 that I read it, he wrote it in 93, but Jack made a comment, towards, I think it was towards the end of the book, that he believed that the approach and the theology of the gifts of the Spirit that he was presenting would become the predominant belief system in the church in America within his lifetime. Well, when I read that, I thought, okay, I accept everything else, but I know fundamentalism, and I know cessationism, and that's not going to happen. And uh, I'm real happy to stand here today and say I was wrong and he was right. And I, I do believe it is the predominant. At least to a very large, large extent, that the, 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 what, what Jack presented in that book has become uh, the belief system in, in, our, in our churches across America today. And, and I, you know, I want to say this, that we have a man with us today that, in my estimation, has had one of the greatest uh, impacts on the church in our generation uh, as a theologian, as a pastor, and as an author of uh, a, a man who cut the path and who forged ahead into new territory that has drawn so many, impacted so many thousands and thousands of other believers, not only here in America, but around the world. And so uh, we're really happy and uh, delighted to introduce Jack Deere to you right now. So let's welcome Jack. Thanks, Jack. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I so appreciate my new PR agent. Uh, <laughs> Got to tone it down a little bit, Van. There's no way I could live up to uh, half that. Uh, I just want to say, uh, go Bengals, right? Yeah. Hottest team in the NFL, and you got uh, the hottest quarterback, uh, my boy Andy Dalton. Uh, you know, Andy sold out to the Lord, and he is a TCU boy. That's my, my school. And uh, we watched him lead us to the probably greatest football four years of, of history in TCU. So I am pulling, whatever that means. I told the great defensive back, uh, uh, Tim Johnson, one time, uh, 
in a, before they played the Cowboys. Uh, and uh, I told Tim, he's watching Redskins. And I said, Tim, I'm really pulling for you. And he goes, what does that mean, Jack? Uh, he kind of wanted prayer, but I, I kind of draw the line at praying, you know, for the, <laughs> the team. But I'm pulling for Cincinnati to win the whole thing. I really hope uh, the Bengals uh, take the Super Bowl. Um, yeah, you could do it. This could be your year. Okay. Uh, well, let's pray for just a second. Lord, thank you for this wonderful word. Uh, thank you, Lord, that, uh, that this word uh, opens our eyes, rejoices our heart, gives light uh, to our eyes. And so we ask that you would do all of that this morning. We ask that the spirit of wisdom and revelation would be among us. And we ask that your wor- word would find a home in the very center of our affections. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus chooses 12 apostles to do ministry with him. Now here's my question. Why did he do it? One of my uh, friends, I'm a young life boy, and uh, we led uh, the, uh, back in the 60s, we led the uh, senior class president of Arlington Heights High School on the west side of Fort Worth. Uh, He came to the Lord in one of our young life camps, and he went out after the crosstalk and uh, sat under a tree, and, he, and here was his prayer coming to the Lord. He said, Lord, I don't know you all that well, but if you need any help, I'm here and willing to pitch in from now on. <laughs> Ken Geyer, that was his prayer coming to the Lord. If you need any help, Lord, you look up at this omniscient, omnipresent, infinite being, and you go, if you need any help, I'm, I'm down here, count on me. So if there was one person that didn't need any help to do ministry, it would have been the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But he chose help. Now here's my question. Why did he do it? The answer is, for the joy of sharing a life that counts. He wanted to give these 12 friends, he wanted to introduce them into a life that counts and will extend out into eternity. See, discipleship is is where friends gather together and they see their life, they see their whole life is a mission for God. That's the purpose they were here and they want to do it as friends together and it produces great joy and it produces a life that counts. And that's what Jesus wanted. And all of them got that eventually. Paul got that. So when you see Paul coming off of, uh, in Acts 20, verse 4, you see him coming off the mission field, and he's making his way to uh, Jerusalem. And he has seven young men with him, and they all have Greek names. They are part of the harvest of his ministry among the Gentiles in Asia Minor. They all had jobs, but they quit their day jobs to travel with Paul. Why? Because in him, they found the joy of a life that counts, and, they, and, and that friendship with him meant more than anything. And this was not some haphazard thing on Paul's part. It was part of his strategy. So at the end of his life, he, he looks at his dear son, Timothy, and in 2 Timothy 2, 2, he says, Timothy, all those things you've heard me say in the presence of many, many witnesses, I want you to entrust them to reliable men and women who will in turn be able to entrust them to others. 
So what he's saying to Timothy is, you are my spiritual son. I love you with all my heart. And I want you to give me grandsons and granddaughters. And I want those grandsons and granddaughters to give me great-grandsons and great-granddaughters. That is how ministry is done in the New Testament. It is through the ministry of discipleship. Now I want to tell you, uh, take a few minutes this morning to tell you about the Paul in my life. Um, I grew up in an extraordinarily traumatic home, but I didn't know it was traumatic. After I became a Christian, I just called my childhood boring, but it was anything but boring. I grew up in a home where there was alcoholism, sexual immorality, um, violence, and ultimately suicide. I grew up in a home where uh, my brothers and I were beaten regularly. And we ended up becoming really wild, wild kids. On December 18th, 1965, I heard the gospel for the first time. Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sins. And if I would trust him to forgive me and give me a new life, he would come into my heart and never leave. Until that very moment, uh, till December 18th, 2 a.m. in the morning, till that very moment, I thought the way you got into heaven was by being good. And I'd already given up on being good because I, by the time I was eight or nine, I was convinced that I was a bad kid. And by the time I was eight or nine, I, I believed that I was going to go to hell unless God just looked down one time and said, well, boys, we'll be boys. We'll let Jackie have a pass here. So I gave up the whole idea of heaven, put God out of my mind. Then my dad committed himself, killed himself, committed suicide. And then I really gave up on God. I I did not want to think about God or heaven and think about my father burning in hell. And so on December 18th, 1965, 2 a.m. in the morning, it was the first time I heard that Jesus died on the cross in my place. And it was not about me being good. It was about me simply trusting him to forgive me and give me his version of life. The version I'd been living wasn't all that hot. So trust him for his version and he will come into your heart and he will never leave again. And when you were an abandoned boy, 17 years old, and everybody you've ever loved has left you, the good news that somebody, there is somebody, this most important person, he won't ever leave you regardless of the way you perform. That is great news. And I believed it that night and I was born again. All right. So fast forward, take take a day forward, December 19th, um, 1965. Here I am. I know one verse of scripture, John 10, 28, because it was told to me the night before. Um, I give my sheep eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so here is the state of my life on December 19th, 1965. Jesus Christ is now resident in my heart. I had not had one single healthy relationship in my entire life. I had no father or positive male influence in my life. No model of a man that I wanted to be like. I had deep reservoirs of anger whose existence but not effects would be hidden from me for the next 40 years. I was frequently tossed about by the storms of testosterone. I had no money and no hope of getting any for college. What chance would you give a kid like that? Well, the day before, none. But Jesus Christ was in my heart on December 19th. And he specializes in boys like me. Three months after I became a Christian, he sent uh, a man named Scott Manley into my life. I met him in the 
aisle of Sagamore Hill Baptist Church. I went to a Baptist church because the guy who led me to the Lord went to a Baptist church, and I met Scott. And uh, Scott was 26 years old. He had just graduated from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, he came up in the aisle. He said, hi, I'm Scott Manley. He shook my hand. And I said, uh, I'm Jackie Deer. And he said, I know who you are. You sound like a really interesting guy to me. Um, he, he, he said, I'm a young life leader. And I said, what's a young life leader? And he said, I'll pick you up six o'clock next Monday and I'll take you to, with me to Richland Hills High School and I'll, and I'll show you what a young life club is. You want to go? And he was so winsome. He was so charming. I mean, uh, I would go on to find out that he was extremely intelligent. He was a voracious reader. He was a phenomenal athlete. Uh, he was uh, full of humor and fun this great-looking guy, he was everything I wanted to be. But in high school, I hadn't been able to distinguish myself athletically or academically. The only way I distinguished myself was by being the wildest kid in school. That's how I got my praise. And so I took him up on his offer, and he showed me what a Young Life Club was, and I thought, this is phenomenal. And I watched him hold 125 kids in the palm of his hand while he talked, and it was amazing. It was better than any sermon I ever heard in church. And so we started hanging out, and, uh, and he taught me how to tell my story. He said, Jack, Jackie, tell them what you were like before you became a Christian. Tell them how you became a Christian. And then tell them how your life has been different since you've become a Christian. And then he picked me up at 5.30 one morning, drove me to what, what he called, what Young Life in those days called the campaigner group. Those were all the Christian guys. And when they had a group for the Christian girls, they were, all, they were the ones that went to special Bible study during the week. The meeting on Monday night, that was for non-Christians. And so he took me there to tell my story. So I did exactly what Scott told me. Uh, and, uh, and some of the guys go, hey, wow, cool, awesome. Scott took me to uh, uh, breakfast afterwards before I went to high school, gone to high school. And he said, Jackie, that was phenomenal. That was awesome. And I said, really? He goes, oh, yeah. It was, that's just the way you want to do it. For the first time in my life, I was praised by the person who was most important to me. And I can't tell you how good that feels. It's too bad it's so rare in life. I could, there's nobody else I wanted to be with. So here's what Scott did. For the next 18 months, he, we were inseparable. So uh, he taught me how to study the Bible. We, uh, he said, now, the unit of study is not the verse. It's the paragraph. So we're going to go down these paragraphs. I want you to read the paragraph and then give it a three-word title. Boil its essence down to three words. And then we go to the next paragraph and do the same thing there. And then figure out what the movement is from this paragraph to that paragraph. He's, he's arguing something, so try to figure out what that is. And then you memorize the uh, three-word titles. So our first book to study together was Second Timothy. And, uh, and I did just what Scott told me. And when I got through studying it, I don't remember how long it took, but I, I shut the Bible, closed my eyes. And I could think my way through that entire book, all four chapters of Second Timothy. And then we went on to First Peter, and then we went on to something else. And he just gave me a way of, of studying where the scripture was getting in my heart, and I could, and I could uh, think my way through books. I would do that with First and Second Samuel, 55 chapters, and I could tell you all what was in all, 55 chapters, just paragraph by paragraph, going, going through it. Because he taught me how to study the Bible like that. 
then he taught me to uh, uh, memorize scripture. He, got, he gave me my first four pack of navigator verses. Back in those days, uh, they, they, you, you got a pack of four verses, you memorized them, sent in a little form, and then they sent you back eight. You memorize those, and they sent you back 16 until you got all 144 verses. And I, and I memorized them in King James because he used King James in my uh, church. And, uh, and also because it was different and a different language and it was kind of easy to memorize. And, you, and, you, and he taught me how to memorize. You say you, the, the, the key to memorizing is memorizing in a topical system. Um, lots of people say, uh, I, I, I try to memorize scripture, but I can't do it. That's because you look at a verse and you go, oh, I like this verse. And then you, you memorize it, but you don't have anywhere to hang it. It just sort of floats around up here. And then you try to recall it, but there's no, there's no, uh, there's no tab to pull it with. So... You memorize verses topically. Uh, so how do you get saved? I get that question all the time. How do you get, somebody asks me that question. I go to that topical system, navigators, the gospel, justification by faith. And I go, oh, it's Acts 1631. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your whole household. Just, like, just that simple. Um, you, somebody says, how do you know God's, uh, uh, how, how do you know Jesus is God? Well, it, it, at that time in my life, I, I knew, uh, I memorized under the deity of Jesus, John 10 30, I and the father are one. So that's a direct claim. But I, I kept this system and the, and the older I got and the more verses I studied, the more I learned that there's not, not just direct claims, but he also does the works of God. So I memorized uh, John 1, 3. Everything in the world was made by Jesus. Nothing was made that was not made by him. So he is creator. So he has direct claims. He, is a, he shares the works of God. He shares the attributes of God. So Peter says in, in, um, in, uh, in John 21, when they're in that questioning thing, verse 17, Peter says, Lord, you know all things. He's omniscient. The chapter before that, he receives worship. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And only God receives worship. When, when John fell at the feet of a, an angel in, uh, in chapter uh, 18, the angel goes, no, don't, don't, don't do that. Worship God only. So, and then Jesus will take the names of God or writers will apply the names of God. Uh, John eight fifty eight before Abraham was, I am. And so I just built this little system. I just kept adding to what the, the, uh, the navigators had, had uh, given me. And it all started with four verses from a man named Scott Manley. And you say, and when I was, by the time I graduated from high school, I had all 144 verses memorized. And you go, what would make a 17 year old kid do that? Well, I knew a Christian once, a real Christian, and that's just what Christians do. He got me when, when uh, my, my genetics were just wide open to being changed, and I just, well, that's, that's what Christians do. Then uh, he taught me how to read Christian books. I was a voracious reader by the time uh, Scott, uh, I met Scott Manley. Reading was one of the ways I escaped some of the trauma in my home and escaped a really uh, vile, mean maternal grandfather. And, uh, but but I, didn't know there were I didn't know there was any such thing as Christian books. I read literary pornography. Uh, I, I read uh, the kind of hot, obscene current novels. I read Jack London stuff, but I didn't know there was any such thing as a Christian book. So Scott puts this book in my hands. He says, hey, I want you to read this book. It's by an English guy. His name's C.S. Lewis, and it's uh, The Screwtape Letters. Let, read it, see what you think of it, and let's talk about it. So this is my copy. It's 50 years old. It's often in my uh, backpack, and I don't know how many times I've reread this book. So Scott just didn't just hand me the book. He, we read the book together and, and talked about it. 
Now, this is my first Christian book to, to read. I'm a bad student in high school, and uh, so I open up this book, and right here on the uh, front page it says, Jackie Deer, 6901 Norma, Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, like, if I lost it, somebody was really going to return it. But Scott said, put your name in the book. So uh, in my early books, my name's right here, all the same thing. And then it says, GL1-9277. Now, that would be Greek to most of you because you didn't live in the days <laughs> when the phone numbers began with an exchange. We lived in the Glendale Exchange. So there's my... Now, so I go to the next page of the book, and it says it's got something in here called a preface. What the heck is a preface? Well, I don't know, but I'm going to read it because I guess you're supposed to read it. So on the... Second paragraph, I circle the word laudatory. On the next paragraph, I circle the word prodigious. Or prodigious. Next paragraph, I circle the word ambiguity. Then probationer. Then corollary. Um, incorporeal. Animating. And what I was doing was circling these words and and looking them up in the uh, dictionary. And I was reading the dictionary more than I was reading the book. (laughs) And then I come down to this sentence at the bottom of the fourth page. Shapes so feminine that they avoid being voluptuous only by their total insipidity, insipidity, the frigid hurus of a teetable paradise. Okay. I have a, uh, a doctorate, and one of my specialties is lexicography, saying exactly what words mean in different languages. That's kind of my, one of my fortes. And I know what every single word in this sentence means, every single one. And this sentence still beats me. I have not a clue what he's talking about. <laughs> so, so I get to this sentence, and I throw the dictionary away. And I just figure, I'll ask Scott what these words mean, uh, or I'll just learn them in, in, in context. I would have thrown the book away on that page had anybody but Scott Manley put this book in my uh, hand and said, read this. So, here's what happened to me. It's my, the first time I've ever read a book like this. And you know the story of the screw tape letters. Uh, screw tape is the senior demon, and he's counseling uh, Wormwood, a minor demon, on his first patient, on his, his first, uh, this English guy, um, Who's, it's during World War II, and uh, the English guy's not a Christian, and so Wormwood's uh, assignment is to keep him from becoming a Christian and, uh, and get him in all the things that will ensure he will go to hell. So uh, I get to uh, letter two, and I read this sentence at the end of letter two. This is screw tape's advice to Wormwood. Keep everything hazy in his mind now, and you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him the, the peculiar kind of clarity which hell affords. I was stabbed with the beauty of that sentence. I had never read words like that. And I memorized it just by, simply by reading it. It just stuck in my mind. And I was bowled over by the fact that Lewis could take the demonic strategy and summarize it in one sentence. 
I, I, I knew enough about hazy thinking and all that. It was just absolutely incredible. I was stabbed by the beauty of that sentence. I'd never read anything like this. And then I come to um, the eighth letter. I'll just read you one more thing that knocked me over. And it's this. He, this is screw tape speaking, and he always calls God the enemy or he. He wants them to learn to walk. Them, meaning the Christians. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I read that sentence and I thought of the Lord on the cross where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at the end of those six hours at three in the afternoon, he looks out on a universe from which every trace of God is vanished. And he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. And I thought, there's the model for life because already four, five, six months old in the Lord, I was already having dry times and questioning the reality or the sincerity of my faith. And I didn't know that was God just pulling back a little bit like we teach our kids to walk. You know, you teach that little, little uh, boy, that little girl with those chubby legs, they're one year, old, one year old and you hold their hands and you just kind of back up and they start going to you and then you let go of their hands and then they're goofy smiling and they're waving like that and they fall and just before their face hits, you pick them up and you hold them up and you're so proud of them, you can't stand it. And I saw God doing that with me pleased even with my stumbles because I was stumbling toward him. I learned that in C.S. Lewis. He opened my mind to a whole world of the intellect and I found it to be beautiful. And so after we finished this, we went on to the next book. We read Mere Christianity and, and uh, then Problem of Pain. And by the time I was maybe my first year in college, I'd read every single Christian book by C.S. Lewis and I started on his literary criticism. He, he was the teacher of my mind. Scott Manley was the teacher of my heart. Fast forward, I'm a sophomore in college. I'm a philosophy major because I want to learn what's so powerful about the arguments from the agnostics and the atheists and causes high school kids to lose their faith. And I'm sitting in an ethics class and the professor is talking about right and wrong, uh, but without God and as though there's some kind of absolute right or wrong. And I just, I just raised my hand and I said, uh, how, how can you talk about absolute, how can there be an absolute right and wrong grounded in, in humanity and all of our different opinions and all that. How can, you, how can you make right and wrong absolute something that's universal without a transcendent personal being that, who, who all right and wrong is rooted in him? And you say, how did a 19-year-old learn to ask that question? I read it in Mere Christianity in C.S. Lewis. That's his argument in the beginning of the book. It's called the moral argument. And my philosophy professor couldn't answer me. He said, why would a 19-year-old kid do that? Well, I knew a Christian one time. And that's just what Christians do. They read C.S. Lewis. Uh, Scott taught me that the kingdom of God was bigger than the church or any of our ministries. And that has stayed with me all my life. He taught me that friendship is the heart of ministry. We We were doing this together because we loved each other and we were friends. 
We were on a mission from God and we organized our friendship around our mission for God. And I've been doing it all my life since then. And it's made ministry one of the great joys in my life. Not a labor, not a burden. So fast forward, I'm in Montana. I'm in my 50s. And, uh, and I'm pastoring a Presbyterian church for a couple of years. And my best friend up there is a guy named Benny B. Benny was raised over a bar in Wolf Point, Montana. And if you ever had to walk down a dark alley and you wanted to be sure you'd come out the side, Benny B is the guy you want by your side. He taught his kids to fight when they were early, and his, and his secret was, it don't hurt to get hit. It, big shoulders, tough, bigger heart. So, so he's, he's one of the elders in my church, and I'm discipling him. I'm teaching him. So a guy dies. It was just coming back to the Lord's life had been in wreck. He dies, and uh, about 20 of the relatives are all gathered there in his cabin, and I get a call, and they're all angry. One of the believers says, calls me, and said, Jack, could you come out here? It, this is just so bad out here. They don't understand. They're mad at God. And could you come out here and talk to us? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go. So I called Benny. I said, Benny, we've got to go up to the guy's place. And Benny goes, Jack, I, have no, I don't know what to say about to, to bereaved people. I have no idea. What, I, I, I would not be any help to you at all. And I said, Benny, you don't have to uh, say anything, but you do have to walk through that door with me. And we're going to see that family. And this, this is an elder. You are a shepherd. This is, this is part of it. And you got to go with me. And he goes, okay, Jack, I trust you, but I, you, you, I'm not going to be any help to you. So we go in there, and, and sure enough, man, the, the anger is palpable. You can feel it. And then the questions start, and why this and why that. And I'm basically just going, I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, this is awful. It is awful. Um, and then uh, someone sa- says something that turns out that one of the people in there have cancer. And I say, well, the, the cancer is awful, and uh, I've, I've buried friends with cancer, but I've also seen people healed. God, God actually heals cancer. And, and the lady says, how? And I said, well, we, we pray for uh, people. And sometimes when we pray for people, uh, he heals them. And it doesn't have anything to do with whether you're good or bad. Or God just loves us. And, and sometimes he'll, he'll remove those things. And, and, uh, and, and I said, would you like us to pray for you? We could pray for you right now. And she said, yes, I would. And so I walk over to her. Benny knows how to pray for people. He's great at that. So he's, we've been doing that for the last year. So we come over to the, to the lady and I said, the way they did it in the New Testament was they would just take their hand and they would lay it on a person and then they would just ask God to heal the person. It's kind of a sign of love and wanting God's power to come down from heaven. And if any of you want to join me, you, you, join us, you can come here and you can, you can pray too. It's not just for pastors. It's, everybody prayed for everybody in the, in the Bible. And so the whole room gets up and they come over, they gather around, we, everybody that can get their hand on her gets their hand on her and then they're putting hands on the back and we've got this huddle over this lady. So I prayed the first prayer. And here's what I say. Uh, Lord Jesus, would you please heal this woman? That's it. I, I don't do anything else. Because if I start scraping the Milky Way or any of that kind of stuff, nobody else is going to pray. I just, and, and I tell them, just use your own words and ask for God to heal. So I, I do that first. Then everybody in the room starts praying. Each one takes a turn. Some people, some people start weeping. And then one of the nephews turns to me. He's, he's right next to me. And he says, what is this? what is this? And the Holy Spirit had just fallen in the room. He goes, what is this? And I said, I said, you mean that feeling that like, feels like a force around us? And he goes, he goes, yeah, what is it? It's wonderful. I said, this is the Holy Spirit. This is God in the room uh, touching our bodies and touching our hearts. And, 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 and several of people, now they're really weeping and they're just saying, this is wonderful. And so we get through praying for the lady. And then I think it was a lady on, on, on the outer rim of the circle. She says, 
Does he do backs too? <laughs> I go, yeah, he's really good at backs. And uh, so then we all gather around and pray for her. Then, we, then we, we're praying for people in the room. Then finally it's time to go. And, and the whole atmosphere in the room has changed. So Benny and I get in the car and we're taking off for lunch. And he goes, oh, I forgot my Bible. And he runs back in, gets his Bible. And he comes back out and he's just bewildered. He goes, it's incredible. I went back in there and they're all standing around in a circle, holding hands, praying and worshiping God. It's incredible, Jack. The Holy Spirit's still in there. So guess who has confidence to walk in a room where someone has died now? I've been doing it for years and, and I know God goes with you. You don't have a, There's no formula, nothing. You just go in with God and love in your heart. Now Benny knows how to do that and he can do that as an elder. Scott Manley taught me to do that. He taught me that ministry was, was about friendship, doing things together. That's, that, it's not about passing out information. It's about friends learning how to be servants of God together. He taught me how to give uh, messages that people... <laughs> that people liked listening to. And see, some of your skeptical faces, you're going, well, how'd you lose that skill? Uh, (laughs) I went to seminary. Uh, But I'm in recovery now, and I'm doing a lot better. He taught me how to pray out loud with people, and it was a valuable thing to do. He taught me how to lead people to Christ. And you know what he said? He said, it all starts with learning their name. Most people can't memorize names to, because when they're meeting someone, they're more concerned about how they're coming across than the, the impression that person is making on them. He said, you don't do that, Jack. Here's what you do. You, you shake their hand and you do not let go of their hand until you've pronounced their name correctly. If you didn't hear it right the first time or the third time, you, keep, you, you hold onto that hand until you've got their name and you've said it right. And as you're saying their name, you look, in, you look at them and you associate some feature about them with their name. And when you get back to the car, you take that little bitty spiral notebook out and you write their name down and the date and some feature about them. And at the end of the uh, night, just before you go to bed, you take out that notebook and you memorize their name. And then you look at it the next day. And before you go to the high school, uh, each day you open that book up and you review those names and see the pictures of their uh, faces. So I'm at a football game on Friday night, a little sophomore named Sally she's uh, walking, walking up the steps and I go, Hey Sally, how you doing? And, and I wave at her like that. And she looks at me. I met her three weeks ago. Hadn't seen her since she knows who I am, but she can't remember my name. She knows I'm an important person. I'm like the, the pastor of the high school and, and she, her face just burst with light. And she waves at me like that because she was important enough for someone to memorize her name. We've asked kids sometimes, when did you first, uh, When did you first get interested in Jesus? And they say, when you knew my name. This is such an easy thing to do. Um, So that's the first thing you do. The next thing you do is you find a common ground to build a friendship with the person. So friendships are about something. And uh, so you take an unbeliever. I I, I do the guys and and, uh, my girl leaders do the girls. And uh, I find something in common. Well, back in the 60s, handball was all the rage. And the guys, uh, and I had access to handballs, high, handball courts. High schools didn't have them. So uh, Scott Manley took me to play handball when I was in high school. Beat me like a drum. And, uh, but he taught me how to play. And that was one of our fun things to do together. So I take kids up to TCU. I'm, I'm a college student up there. I, I take the football players, the uh, basketball players, take all the athletes up there. I take them, I teach them how to play handball, and I beat them like a drum. And they love me for it. 
And we have something in, in, uh, in common. And that friendship grows, and sooner or later it starts getting personal I, I, uh, about a drug, or I did this with my girlfriend, and, and whatever. And the next thing you know, we've built this bridge of friendship, and we carry the gospel across it. And we're still friends whether I get to carry the gospel across it or not. He taught me how to do that. And so I run into people today who say, you led my wife to the Lord in, in, the, in the Fort Worth, Dallas area. You led uh, my husband to the Lord, or you led me to the Lord, and, and so on. It's just leading people to the Lord was, was a way of life because that's what Christians do. Um, he taught me that, um, that life with God is to be enjoyed, not endured. Scott was one of the most fun people I've ever had in my life. He taught me, that, he taught me to be generous, to pick up the check and not make a big deal of it. He taught me that money was a little thing and had very little to do with our happiness. That's what I learned in 18 months of being with Scott on a regular basis. Then it was time to graduate. I followed my girlfriend to Texas Tech, 300 miles west of Fort Worth in Lubbock, Texas, out in the dust-blown windy prairies. And I learned that year that following your girlfriend is rarely a good thing to do. (laughs) At Texas Tech, there were 1.5, in the fall of 1967, there were 1.55 guys for every girl, which predicted a lot of lonely weekends for guys. But my girl defied math. She was absolutely stunningly beautiful. So there wasn't 1.55 guys waiting in our line There were hundreds of guys, older, mature, good-looking guys, athletic guys, rich guys, and uh, she dumped me the first week. And I I don't blame her. Uh, If I'd been her, I'd have dumped me long before. Uh, (laughs) She was way out of my class. I I mean, I would have never picked me up if I were her. So I'm going through my first heartache at Texas Tech. Uh, Just heart broke out of my mind like the Brooks and Dunn song. And I I thought, well... I might as well salvage this experience with an education. So I decided for the first time in my life to start studying school stuff. And it turns out by by midterm semester, I find out that I can make uh, straight A's in school on science or math or whatever it was. I've been given a brain that could whip out a four point. I also found out that college was not a good place for education. Because all I had to do was memorize some facts, regurgitate it in the morning on a test, forget it in the afternoon, and that was all. It was, there was no stimulation to it. It was just sheer memory. No, no, you didn't, critical thinking not required. Seeing the beauty of, of Shakespeare not required. I never had anybody to open up literature to me in my whole college experience. People were able to bore me with Shakespeare. Now I love Shakespeare. I read them all the time. So I, I found out that college is not a particularly good place for an education. Well... Now, I might as well salvage this by working on my body. I've been a weightlifter since ninth grade, so I get in the weightlifting program there. And when that's over, I still go three days a week, never miss, work on my, uh, working out weight, put on 20 pounds, not an inch in my uh, waist. And I learned the most important principle of weightlifting. Only losers go to the gym on Friday night. (laughs) Everybody else goes out. Well, I'm working on a body that nobody wants. <laughs> so if you get the idea that I was utterly depressed by the spring, you've got the right idea. God was teaching me in that year at Texas Tech the pain of the disconnected life. I've never had a year like that since. 
It was one of the greatest lessons I ever learned. I, I, I woke up one afternoon, looked at this dust storm. There was dust all over Lubbock and there was dust all over my soul. And I said, what am I doing here when my life is back in Fort Worth? And I knew my life was back in Fort Worth because I went home every chance I got. So every month I, went, I, I would drive home to Fort Worth. Scott Manley would be waiting for me. He would uh, call me and he'd go, hey, let's go to dinner and a movie tonight. And I would say, Scott, I don't have any money. I was going on to school on a loan and a grant. And so I just barely, I, just, I said, I used all my money, my gas, my gas, money for gas. And he goes, ah, oh, don't worry, I got plenty. And he didn't have plenty. He lived in a tiny little uh, one bedroom, uh, not one bedroom, just one room garage apartment on University Drive, a few blocks from TCU. And so he said, come on, I'll pay, don't worry. And, and then we would go to dinner and a movie. My youth pastor in, in church was never in my house. Scott was always in my house. That happened every single time. And somewhere around the spring semester, uh, it kind of dawned on me what was going on. Uh, I had chosen to spend the next four years 300 miles away from Scott. I was totally useless to Scott. I couldn't help him recruit college kids, uh, all that, my my gifts and all that. He, He couldn't benefit from it all. But it didn't matter to him. He still wanted to be with me, even if it were for a weekend. It's the first time I remember being loved apart from my usefulness. And it may be the greatest feeling in the world. And so I, I went back to lead that Young Life Club with, uh, with Scott Manley to be with him. And uh, when we got back there, Young Life moved him to Oklahoma City. The worst pain I, I had as a, uh, as a young guy, way worse than the heartbreak I suffered from the loss of my girlfriend. And well, I saw Scott over the, the, the coming uh, years. I mean, we, we went to Oklahoma City a lot. I got married. Uh, he would come down. He and Ann would come down and stay with us. But it wasn't the same as being together all the time. And uh, there were two things about Scott that I never understood. He was not judgmental. I, and I, I, for the life of me, I couldn't understand that. He, 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 just, he just did not say critical words about anybody, even an enemy he didn't talk about. And, I, and I, was, I was raised in a judgmental, critical home, and that's been dogging me all my life. But, but Scott wasn't that way. And here's the other thing I never understood. Scott suffered more than any other Christian I knew. I never worked, things never worked out for Scott. He, he's ripped out of this great young life community he's built in Fort Worth, sent up to Oklahoma, that doesn't really mesh with the leaders, the, the, the committee people up there, and uh, ends up having to leave what he loves after four years. Um, gets, becomes a stockbroker, but his heart's never into that because he's not into making money. It doesn't motivate him. And, and, and finances never work out. But here's the worst thing that happened to him. The, mo- the thing he most wanted in life was his own son and daughter. He had been a spiritual father to sons and daughters over all over Texas and all over Oklahoma City and back in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he was raised and went to college. But he didn't have his own son and he didn't have his own daughter and he wanted that more than anything else. And the love of his life, and Anne, could not have children. So they adopt, they adopt Monica and then they adopt Guy Robert. Guy Robert, uh, I, I believe, was demonized from uh, birth. I saw him as a little boy. I saw him as 18 months in diapers, violent, hateful. I saw him at eight years old in my home screaming out obscenities to his parents, just on fire with fury. 
Uh, and the older he got, the meaner and the worse it got. Drug addiction, knife fights, the jail, and all this until finally he's, he's kind of estranged from the family. Then in August uh, 2008, Scott and Ann are on a vacation. This is just a typical story. They're on a vacation, and uh, Guy, guy uh, goes into the ICU, uh, overdosing drugs, and uh, he's flatlined. And so Scott and Ann drive 17 hours back, and they're in the uh, ICU room. And there's a battle going on for a number of days. And finally, they stand beside the room. He's 34 years old, and they watch the tech unhook him from life support. Scott goes home, and he's uh, sitting in his living room with his best friend, John Bingham. And John is a good friend of ours. I call him on the phone 30 minutes after they unhooked Guy. I call him on the phone, and uh, I say, I love you so much. I love you so much. I, I can't imagine life with, uh, without you, what I, how I would have turned out. Um, I said, and now we're brothers in death. You know, I, I named my second-born son David Scott Deer. I, I remind Scott of that. Because I wanted him to grow up and be just like David Scott Manley. And now, Scott, we're brothers in death. I love you so much. And we cried together on the phone. And John cried. We cried. Uh, cried. And, and, uh, and then we said, uh, we're, we're going to get together in, in the... We're going to get together in, uh, in the fall. We're going to go fishing. We're going to play golf. We're going to drink some great wine together. And, and, uh, and then in the fall, Scott uh, came down with, uh, we thought it was pneumonia. And he went into the hospital at 69 for the first time in his life. He had never been in a hospital, wasn't even born in a hospital. Never had any sickness. The only thing wrong with Scott was he was claustrophobic. That was the only thing wrong, a perfect physical specimen. He gets out of the hospital, and then a week later, he goes back in. And this goes all through the fall. And finally, in December, they figure out too late what it was. Pulmonary uh, fibrosis. Uh, and the doctors say to him, um, we can't do anything. We can't reverse this. Uh, you're going to die, and you're going to drown in your own fluids. We're going to make you as comfortable as we can. The absolute worst death, worst death for a claustrophobic to suffocate in their own fluid. So it's, it's uh, the end of December. Uh, the nurses are fighting. He'll never go out of the height. He goes in at the beginning of December. He'll never go out of the hospital again. It's the end of, end of December. By the end of December, the nurses on his floor are fighting for who gets to care for him. Vice president of Young Life is standing outside the door. Scott discipled him when he was in Oklahoma City. And uh, now he's, he's come to encourage Scott. He's standing outside the door while a nurse pricks Scott's fingers. And as the nurse pricks Scott's fingers to take the blood, Scott is asking about her children by name, how they were doing. And the vice president starts crying. He says, how do you encourage a person like that? One of his last days, his secretary came in and placed her little five-year-old girl on the, uh, on the bed. And Scott says, honey, give your heart to Jesus and he will never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll be with you and he'll protect you all your life. He used his last breath to tell that to a five-year-old girl. And the little girl didn't notice the contradiction speaking to her. Cold January morning, uh, he died. 
I'm going to read you uh, five things I wrote uh, about his, his death, or about him. Five lessons from his life. God gives some people grace to do miracles, and he gives some people grace to endure. In Hebrews 11, some people shut the mouths of lions, and some people are sawed in two. Scott was one of those people that got sawn in two. Which do you think brings God more glory? The grace to do a miracle or the grace to get sawn in two and keep on believing and keep on loving? Two. Some people are known on earth and some people are known in heaven. You probably never heard the name Scott Manley before today. But I'm certain that in January 2009, everyone in heaven heard the name Scott Manley when Jesus said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. Now I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Scott lived for one day, and it was the day he stood before the Son of God and had his life evaluated. It is utterly foolish to live for any other day. I wake up every morning with that day in front of me, and I yearn to hear these words. Not everyone is going to hear these words. Every Christian is going to heaven, but not all of us are going to hear these words. And I yearn to hear these words, and I don't know if I'm going to hear them. I don't have any assurance. So I wake up every day with this in my mind, and I, I think of Scott Manley. And if there's one person in heaven that heard those words that I know, it's Scott Manley. Third, Hebrews 11.4 says that Abel offered a greater sacrifice to God, and though he is dead, yet he still speaks. I could say that about Scott this day. Though he is dead, yet he still speaks. Not through books he left behind, nor through books written about him, but through living messages he wrote on human hearts transformed by his love. He is speaking to you right now through one of his disciples. Scott fourth. Scott didn't lose his life in January. He lost it a long time ago to the one who said, if you lose your life for my sake... You will really save it. And the last thing. There were perhaps a thousand people at Scott's memorial service. At the beginning of the service, the minister said, If Scott Manley had a significant impact on your spiritual life, would you please stand up? More than 90% of the room stood. And as we stood, without realizing it, we each gave silent but eloquent testimony to the meaning of life. It's not what you leave behind, but who you leave behind. C.S. Lewis said, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Let's pray. If God has been speaking to you, would you just take uh, maybe a moment here in the silence of your own heart, respond to him. Lord, I pray for the grace for all of us to be able to see our life as a mission and organize our life around that mission with friends we love. And I especially pray for this church, which already has this vision. The Vineyard has this vision. I pray for this church that it would become famous for the disciples that it produces and that those disciples would go around the world producing other disciples. 
grant great, extraordinary grace to the vineyard here, Northwest Vineyard here, in the name of Jesus. And Lord, grant your, grant your illuminating grace here this morning. If there's anyone here that does not know the Lord Jesus, has not yet been born again, has not yet trusted him, would you work in their heart to do that right now? We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Is there anyone here and you want to give your heart to the Lord Jesus? You've never done that, but you want to do that today? You do? Okay, if if anybody here wants to give their heart to the Lord Jesus, I would love it if you would come and and talk to me afterwards. I'll, I'll be down here praying for people, but I would really love to pray with someone about coming to the Lord. Uh, Can we have the prayer teams come forward, please? God heals people today. He does wonderful things. He heals people on the inside. He heals them on the outside. The Holy Spirit has been in this room uh, for a half hour or longer in the the room during worship, but there's uh, a little bit intensity of his presence right now. So this would be a great time if you want prayer for anything. This would be a great time to to come forward for it. Uh, Van? Uh, thank you, Jack. Uh, Oops. Thank you, Jack. Love you, Bless man. You. Love you, too. Let's all stand up, all right? And as Jack just shared, this is a, a, a wonderful, great time to come get prayer for healing, get prayer for anything you're struggling with in your life, uh, just for God's grace in your heart to continue to trust him. But um, come down for prayer, and, and especially those of you that um, want to open your heart to Jesus, come and find Jack and let him be part of that with you, okay? Uh, let's pray, and then uh, the, you, we're going to conclude today and uh, allow you to come down for prayer. But, Father God, we, we thank you for your, your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that even in the midst of heartache and pain, you are good, and you love us, and your heart is for us. And, Father, I, I pray for people uh, right now that m- might be struggling with some life situation that is just filling filling their life with pain. We ask for your grace for them right now. And we ask for release, Father, and for peace, for help and hope, just the, the release of your presence. And, uh, Father, we will look forward to that day that we stand before you and um, in, 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 in your son's name. We come before you right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, great to see you here. Uh, We'll look forward to seeing you all next week. And make your way down for prayer. Just hang out uh, with some friends right now, okay?